Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. In this episode, you'll learn about some of the big ideas in product management to help you make that move to product master. Specifically, the difference between building the product right versus building the right product, challenges of working with development teams, how to assemble roadmap, release planning, and the benefits of using divergent thinking followed by convergent thinking. My guest for addressing those topics is Suzanne Abate, a seasoned product coach who has developed hundreds of digital products for clients and helped dozens of startups go from idea to execution. She's the co-founder of The Development Factory, an LA-based product consultancy and chief product officer of 100 Product Managers, a free online resource and weekly podcast for new and aspiring product managers. For the written summary of my discussion with Suzanne, go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 157. Also, this episode is being published on January 1st, the time of resolutions and goal planning for the new year. Do you have a goal for your career as a product manager, or are you just hoping for the best? The frequent goals I hear are to become more confident and increase influence, which both happen as you develop your craft as a product manager. And that's my goal for you when I created the Idea Framework, a course to develop your craft. I start regular coaching sessions as part of this course in just a few days on January 11th, so you still have a little time to join the course. And remember, listeners always receive great deals on my training courses. To see all that the Idea Framework course offers and your special discount as a listener, 20% off the normal cost, go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea. That's I-D-E-A. Remember, the live coaching sessions start in just a few days. So if you're interested at all, check it out now at theeverydayinnovator.com slash idea. It's a great start to the new year. Now, enjoy the interview with Suzanne. Suzanne, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chad. I'm excited. I'm excited too. It's always fun when I get to talk to another podcaster, and I'm sure you can tell us about that later, and a product manager. And you have lots of good experience for us. I just kind of want to dive in. One thing I kind of want to set the stage about who this discussion will be helpful to, your background is in the digital realm, uh, software sort of products. And knowing the things we're going to talk about, do you think that this applies to other product managers or more to software people? Yeah, I mean, this is a a question that comes up a lot. I, I teach product management as well. And I'm a big believer that a lot of the mindset and the processes apply universally to this notion of what is product management. And then there are, of course, you know, a lot of specifics that if you're building internet products, for example, and you start to get into things like software delivery methods and process, that's a little bit more specific to folks that are operating in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, ideas around building the right products are certainly applicable whether you're building manufactured goods or or any other type of product so i love that perspective it's one that we shared didn't know if we would or not one of my early experiences in a, a meetup situation was this happened to me through a pdma one of their chapters but you know product managers get together we talk about what we do right and i met this guy uh, lee Matu- machucci and he was at, actually a, a guest in episode 014 so some time ago and he was in building products he worked for john mansfield 
and doing like, you know, roofing systems and, you know, tile, shingles, adhesives, things and, and the like. And I thought it was so fascinating with me coming from a software background, how much we talked the same way <laughs> about what we do. Right. And how many insights I gained from people in other industries. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I love your perspective on that too. So everyday innovators, even though we might be talking about uh, digital products as a context, there's something for everyone to take away from this. Let me ask you the first question that you, you have said before, uh, made a distinction here between building the right product and building the product right. And it seems that maybe both tend to be important, but, but tease that apart for us some. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, they're both important if they're important to you, which is probably at the base, right? Is philosophy and mindset, as I said already, is a big part of it. Um, Building the product right, in a lot of ways, is the easier aspect, right? There are so many folks out there who are good at what they do, great interaction designers, great engineers, a lot of people who have a lot of experience bringing product to life. And, and most businesses that, that don't succeed, which is most businesses, don't typically fail because they couldn't manage to get the product out the door. Mm. And so for that reason, I think this idea of building the right product as a, a precursor to building the product right is an important part of starting to think about your product journey, right? Whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a product manager inheriting an existing product or being brought on board to bring a product to life, I think if you're not starting with, should we even do this as a question, then you may be starting in the wrong place. Okay. Generally, and, and I, I agree with this position too, that generally easier to build the product right. There, there's good people out there as long as we can, you know, set up what, what we need the product to do and get it done. This was part of Eric Reese's story, right? That led to writing the lean startup book that they built the product right and then no one bought it. Right. <laughs> right. I, with the work that you do at the development factory, I'm curious when customers engage you to work on products, where are they kind of in that cycle? Are they, have they already had a failure with, hey, we built the product well, but no one really cared? Or do they have clear requirements? They understand their customers? Or do you get involved in helping them understand what the right product is too? Yeah. So, so really quickly, the development factory is an end to end product consultancy. So we work, um, primarily with B2B organizations that are looking to either create top line revenue or increase operational efficiency through custom software solutions. And so, you know, we help organizations get from A to B. Mm -hmm. Sometimes A to B is I have an idea and I want to launch it. Sometimes A is we built something and we need to replatform or, you know, think about repositioning this differently in order to go after adjacent um, customer segments or market segments. So, you know, you asked the question of, of where people come to us. In the context of, so I have an idea, a lot of the time somebody comes in the door ready to write a check and say, can you build this thing? Right. And I, I've said to my clients, my job is to reject your money five times over. 
um, before taking it. And usually that rejection comes in the form of opening a dialogue exactly around this thing that we're talking about, which is building the right product. Mm -hmm. So it's great that you've set aside some money. It's even better when people have set aside the right amount of money, but it's not great if they're already coming with a whole bunch of assumptions that they don't even recognize as being assumptions. It's not great if they're already coming with maybe some wishful thinking that just by virtue of building the product, the customers will, will find it and activate it and mm-hmm. use it and, and love it. And so I really try to incorporate, um, an educational position into those early consultations and say, look, I would love for you to go away and conduct some generative research. And if you've never done that, um, I can spend one or two hours with you and and give you some tips on conducting effective uh, customer interviews. And I would like for you to go and do it. You can certainly pay me to do it, but I think if you do it yourself, you'll learn a lot more and it'll cost you a lot less. And Mm -hmm. You know, there's an expression that I use, which is uh, pre-work is free work. And in a world of software development where the costs can rack up pretty quickly, uh, I think people should embrace all of the free work that they can. Right. And get prepared properly. So when it comes to figuring out what is the right product build, it sounds like getting some insights from the customers is a path that you go down, right? If you're asking your, your, your clients or if you're doing the work yourself, doing some customer interviews first to really understand what the need is, what the task is they're trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, I think working backwards, certainly from an observed need is a good Mm. starting point, right? You know, people come up with ideas all the time. Everyone who works in, in tech, I'm sure, has friends who say, I've got a great idea for an app. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen. There's a reason why some ideas don't come to life, and it's because they're not viable ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Or they really only serve a very, very tiny subset of folks, which also I would say doesn't mean that you shouldn't build a product in that space. I'm, I think we're a society that's become obsessed with growth and scale. And I think it's perfectly fine to just have intention around creating niche business opportunities, but definitely starting with validating that other people have the need um, that you've identified. And I think more importantly, validating how, how ready are they for that need? Because, you know, I talk about education. If, if somebody has a problem, but they don't know that they have a problem, then you're, you're heading down a path of needing to invest very, very heavily in educating that person right. about their problem before they're actually ready to connect with it. And that is a process that, that any product company has to go through. But I think if you're looking to get early traction, looking for folks who have pain, who have identified with it, and who have maybe even tried themselves to... Um, create, you know, build or buy their own solution around that is a pretty good indication that they're ready for what you might have to offer. I love your position on this. I, the the phrase you shared of, you know, uh, you turn down their money five times. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not very good at business saying it now. Well, apparently things are working. So this appears to be a smart approach because one, that that I'm sure over time creates actually a better connection. You know, you probably have better customers because of that because people that want to that realize that you want to build the right product, you know, or can be more invested in the process with you too. So 
that takes us through the, you know, some insights into the, the right product, something that actually provides value to customers that's been validated that the need is there. And we have a way to help customers recognize that they have this problem. Like on the other side of that, then, you know, building the product right. Uh, you've worked with uh, internal development teams, external development teams. What are some of the issues, the benefits and challenges that you've seen with both of those worlds? You know, we're a consultancy. So by default, if a client engages with us, they're essentially outsourcing their product management and strategy and development, at least for a period of time, typically sort of six to 18 months with most of our client engagements. Um, so all of our team members are, are in-house, but we may, in, in the context of some engagements, we act as an, a team augmentation to others. So there might be one or two developers on an existing team and we're kind of bolstering around them. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, there's obviously so much that I can say about this and, and maybe I'll give you an opportunity opportunity to frame some questions more specifically, but one starting point I can offer is in regards to to being agile and what it means to be agile. I think it's hard no matter what to, to really embrace agile methodology and to really institute some of those processes, whatever you subscribe to, whether it's extreme programming or it's scrum. Um, but it's especially hard to do it when you're constantly changing the client and their philosophies or processes may not be aligned with yours. So we try to run agile as an organization and then we constantly have to modify our process a little bit to, to meet the needs and the pace of the client. Hmm. And I haven't ever thought about it from that perspective on having to modify agile for the client and, you know, trying to probably aligning with their larger process a bit. I was curious about the team aspect too, because, you know, you know what, what you said, when it, what it means to be agile, we do this terrible thing in companies, not just for agile kind of work, but we might, you know, end up with a high performing team that did a great job on a project and anyone that has gone through the process of getting to be a high-performing team understands the pain involved in the way, right? The Becoming a truly high-performing team is is magical, and very few teams actually make it there. Yeah, you got to go through the storming and norming exactly. phase before you can go performing. Yeah, yeah, Tuck, Tuckman's team formation stages, right? So we work through that, and then in most organizations, the project ends, and we split the team up, and we go work on other things, which is really, really hard for Agile. What's been your experience with that, those team dynamics? And are you able then from the client's perspective, leave your teams intact for development? Or I would think as clients come and go, you have to deal with this, you know, wrestling of shifting people some too. Yeah. So a little bit about our, our structures. So uh, part of what we do at the development factory is we provide organizations with a complete product team fractionally. So one of the challenges is I want to build a product or I want to allocate some some resources to developing out or expanding on a product, but um, do I insource a team or do I outsource a team? And whatever you decide, whether you insource or you outsource, one of the problems that I, I've seen a lot of clients run into is that they try and get everything out of one or two people, right? And, mm. you know, development is an orchestra. You can't just put one or two developers in a room and call that a product team. That's a, that's a partial engineering team. 
And if they don't have a, a quality manager to, to work with and assist them, if they don't have an interaction designer to, you know, help them to solve some of the problems around how things will present visually, and if there's not a, a product manager or strategist or owner there to kind of um, be advocating for the customer and the business impact, then you really don't have a product team. And so part of our approach is to say, we're going to give you an entire team over a period period of time and you'll end up getting that team for about the same investment as you would to hire just one or two uh, dedicated folks within a, a specialized role. And what we what we really kind of hope to do in that is provide an integrated process of thinking. And what we save for the customer there is having to invest upfront in process, having to invest upfront in recruitment, having to invest upfront mm-hmm. in learning. How this all relates back to your question is the structure of our organization is um, usually the interaction designer, the product manager, and the uh, technical sort of quality manager are always part of a dedicated client team. And then there's an engineering team that will get um, stitched into that fabric depending on the specific needs of the product. So we're a little bit platform agnostic. We do some ASP.NET development. We work in PHP. So depending on who the client is and, and what we determine the approaches, we may swap the engineers in or out. Um, but everybody in the organization operates from the same processes that, that we've established internally. Okay. Part of that that stood out to me was actually the cross-functional nature of the team, whether you are augmenting or putting any team in place. And I, uh, I just want to highlight the roles again that you talked about that were core team. And I'm not sure I got these right. So the interaction designer, mm-hmm. um, which we might think of as the user experience, the UX sort of person. Yep. The actual product manager, who I would believe is the person who is helping us more than anyone doing the right product, making sure we're meeting a customer need and serving the needs of a, a, a market, a group of customers. Exactly. And then did you, did you say a technical quality manager? Think of a, a type of individual who might typically play the role of scrum master. Um, but for us, we, we have project managers, project managers, of course, being distinct from product managers in that they typically focus a little bit more on the tactical execution mm-hmm. and the kind of the, the strategic vision. And we just simply require that our project managers are a little bit more technically oriented because they do operate significantly as a go-between of the, the engineering team mm-hmm. and the rest of the, of the team. So that ability to speak code, so to speak, and, and also be able to, to advocate for challenges of a technical nature when you're you know, doing a release planning session or story time is uh, tremendously valuable. Yeah, they can bridge that gap a bit with the engineering team. And, and that just provides them more credibility and it helps the project be more successful because there's often that gap between kind of the, the user requirement business side and the development engineering. And it sounds like your project managers is helping to fill that gap, right? Address that. You know, it's funny, like this comes up a lot when when a release gets pushed, right? And there's tickets that need to get tested. And I think sometimes clients, especially if they haven't been exposed significantly to building digital products, have an expectation that a release means everything works and is perfect. And 
that's not usually what a release means. I mean, it, it means that we got through a bunch of work and some of it might have tested and, and passed and some of it might not and some of it might still need to be tested. But there are actual people that need to do that work. And mm-hmm. so this goes back to that point that I was making of, you know, hiring hiring a single engineer or hiring a single, you know, one or two folks and expecting that all of the roles that, that really go into delivering great products will miraculously be covered. Um, that's an exercise in wishful thinking, right? Somebody has to be dedicated to that role of checking the quality of the work. And for a lot of reasons, sometimes that's a job that's better left not to the engineer who is actually delivering that, that line of code. So the, those different roles, what, what I think is important there is that that's what we need to have a well-functioning product team, right? And whether the organization, uh, listeners that are, are in organizations can get those roles or already have them in place, but just realizing that they're important, each one of those, or are augmenting them through uh, outsourced help from a group like yours, or bringing in that fractional product team entirely to work on a specific project. Yeah. The, and I think those are, are the three kind of big pieces, the usability, that interaction, that design perspective needs to be part of the team, the product manager that has a clear focus on the customer, and then that, that kind of project role that you've put quality in also, but the project role to make sure the tasks are getting done with engineering and development and, and getting what we expect to be built. built. Yeah. Really good. For me, those are those are the recipes. Or those are the ingredients for that building the product right piece that we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep, I have to have them all mixed together. Okay, so we, we've talked a little bit about building the right product or building the product right. The team aspect that of that a little bit. A different topic that comes up with product managers at times is this issue of roadmaps and what is the best way for doing a roadmap. And how does that relate to the bigger picture of what we're trying to get done? How do we do releases inside of that? You talked about releases just a moment ago. I mean, if we're using something like Scrum and doing sprints and how these things all fit together, what kind of technique do you use to manage that to to fit these pieces together? Yeah, I don't know if it's a technique, but I can certainly talk through, um, at least in my mind, how these things relate to each other and, and sequence. And I uh, not long ago published an article about this um, precisely on roadmapping and assembling a product roadmap uh, for the blog over at Product Plan. So if anybody mm-hmm. listening wants a little bit more information, you can check that out. It's called a, Assembling a Product Roadmap. But So what is the product roadmap, right? The product roadmap is a vision for where you're going. And depending on the maturity of the organization, depending on a lot of variables, you might have a roadmap that's, you know, six weeks out in front of you and nothing beyond that. Or you might have a roadmap that's seven years out in front of you. And I think that relates back to that question you asked at the outset, right? Which is who can who can best benefit from some of this conversation? If you're building hardware products, if you're building automobiles, mm-hmm. if you're part of an enterprise organization, you're not going to have the luxury of being able to to iterate, you know, in four and six week increments, you know, on the strategy, right? on the strategy. And that's really what the roadmap is. It says, here's uh, where we're going and and why we're going there and what impact we believe will be created as a result of that. So once you have a roadmap, um, you probably have, uh, depending whatever software you use, and you know it doesn't matter, whatever your preference, you probably have something in the form of a, a colored bar that really 
is more like an initiative or an epic, right? So you might say something like, usability improvements in Q4, or you might say referral program. And at the roadmap level, it's not really defined much beyond that. It's referral program. And if you use the OKR syntax, then hopefully you've anchored that initiative to a a measurable result that you hope to see. So that's where, for me, release planning comes in. Um, And, you know, we typically do release planning monthly, sometimes twice in a month, depending on on what the nature of the project is. But the release plan is really like a story time. It's an opportunity to say, okay, so what is this referral program? Who's it for and why are we doing it? And and what are some of the components that we need? And we might in that session be parsing a lot of the feedback that we've already collected um, from existing customers or existing stakeholders. So this is, you know, maybe the first creative exploration of the the theme or the epic. And uh, in we, we do a lot of story mapping. I'm a big fan of, of Jeff Patton's story mapping approach and, you know, using it to get a really big picture of what the thing might ultimately look like and then using a validated learning lean methodology to get really honest about what is essential for releasing initially. That's that idea of like horizontally slicing um, a holistic picture. So once you've done that, um, we use right now at the development factory, we use a tool called Stories on Board. So Stories on Board integrates very nicely with a, another tool that we love for software delivery method, which is Pivotal Tracker. And so we're able to sync automatically all of the stories from Stories on Board directly into Pivotal Tracker. And now we've got a, a backlog that is ready to be groomed ongoing and um, creates the fodder for the sprint planning, which in our organization, we typically run sprints in two-week cycles. There's a lot there. <laughs> that, that was great. Let, let's unpack that a bit. Big view, we have this roadmap. And so in my mind, I'm thinking of a piece of paper that, or a big whiteboard or however we do this. Definitely a whiteboard. We love whiteboards in product the, 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 They're easier to change. That's the important thing. <laughs> That looks Gantt chart like, right? So some kind of big time frame. So maybe we're doing this by quarters. Maybe we're doing this by, you know, the next few weeks. Maybe we're doing it a little bit less, less determined by time. Just say, this is what we have in process now. This is what we think we're going to do next. This is the longer term out things. Mm-hmm. And you, you have that organized by themes or, or epics, right? Some, some major initiative. We, we need to clean up the user interface. We need to add integration to a, another capability. We need to create this new report uh, generator. S- some big theme as part of where we're going with the system. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So that varies a lot by the discipline, of course. You talked about that. For the work that you're doing, do you tend to see your projects are, are six to 18 months kind of long? Do you tend to work in roadmaps that are six to eight weeks in terms of of a, a theme, just where, where do you chunk that? Yeah, it. Uh, we do a lot of work with startups. So if it's a startup, it's almost always the next quarter is planned. The quarter after that is tentatively planned and mm-hmm. anything after that, I always say you can put it on the roadmap as long as you're not emotionally attached to it. Um, so I, I think it, it really, this goes back to how much are you trying to prove, right? Mm-hmm. What are these activities actually in service of? If, if, you're, if you're bringing a new product to market, 
there's going to be so much intelligence that's going to be gained from that initial release and so much iterating that's going to be required as soon as you put it out the door that having too many things teed up, you know, on the heels of that um, is I think uh, is setting yourself up for disappointment because usually the answer isn't more features, right? Usually the answer is, okay, we put it out and we're not getting the retention we hope for. What is the problem? Is it a usability problem? Is it a learnability problem? How can we make some changes? And so you're, you, you know, the exercise is staying where you are and making improvements to what already exists. Sometimes, you know, you just release to minimum a product and, and right. you do have to add features. But even then, it's, it's, in my experience, rarely the features that you plan to add and mostly the result of, of things that you miss that you're now learning through, through market intelligence. Okay. And that brings us to the releases. And mm-hmm. and you talked about the lean nature of releases. And I, I want to just emphasize that and, and see if we think about it in the same terms. The people that do this really well are just brutal at cutting capability out of that release, especially in the context that you're talking about, where we're trying to get incremental capability out in, a, in maybe a startup setting. Let's say we have 50 things on our wish list that we want to put into the system cutting that in half is the start, right? And getting it down to just as what the minimum that's really needed for that initiative or for the, the, the epic at that time and being very lean in our thinking about what do we really need to make that release work? Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, so, so I mentioned Jeff Patton and mm-hmm. this is the, the part that I think is worth emphasizing at release planning. I encourage, um, uh, divergence and convergence, meaning first, let's get the big picture out, right? Let's let's be holistic in our thinking. Let's really create the narrative of this product or this module or this feature from start to end. Let's talk about all of the things that it could be. If you like, you know, um, Amazon's how do we make it magic approach or, you know, Airbnb's 12-star rating approach, right? A lot of organizations have spoken about talking through how we make it even better and better and better and better. So I encourage going as far out as you possibly can in the context of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful as well because releasing a shippable product doesn't mean just releasing fractional functionality. It means releasing complete functionality, even if it's a little bit light in its overall um, capabilities. So, having a whole release planned and then approaching it with some more um, uh, convergent thinking and saying, okay, can we save this for later? Is this a nice to have? If we took it away, if we subtracted, would the whole thing crumble? If we didn't release this right away, could we still prove value? And that's the exercise in, you know, um, they say like killing your darlings, right? right? So the the goal is to to get really comfortable with learning to defer things and you know being connected to the cost, the level of effort that it takes to do something helps with that. Mm-hmm. And that's again, this goes back to you know clients and the challenges of of educating clients is especially with digital, there, there's sometimes a disconnect in the mind of, of how much work something actually takes. And so it's very easy to be like, but I need that, but I need that. Well, everything has to be there. And it's like, well, if everything is important, nothing is important. So really pushing for 
stripping away anything that won't, um, that won't contribute to the goal, right? That won't actually contribute to the goal, which raises an important point. I talked about OKRs. If you've identified what the impact is that you're trying to create, if you've identified what is the key result, the key success criteria, the the desired outcome of this particular initiative, then you can use that to anchor all of these micro discussions that come up during a release plan. You say, okay, well, this this cool button that everyone wants, we're, we're attached to it, but let's remember our key result. Is this button going to inform and influence this key result one way or the other. No? Okay. And it can wait, probably. Right. And just a quick context there for listeners on the OKR, the objectives and key results. So maybe an objective would be aligned with your your epic, your theme. And maybe big picture say we want to grow retention 10%. So that, that, that's our objective. Well, what, what would we have to do and what would we actually measure to know if we're getting there or not, right? What, what would kind of be those leading indicators, the results that we would want to see to know maybe in a quarter or two that we actually did grow our, our retention 10%. just want to say too, it's so, so important because most of us know how to think in terms of objectives, right? I, I describe objectives as a broad, ambitious goal. So most of us have lots of broad, ambitious goals, actually setting measurable um, finish lines, right? That's a, the term I like to use is to say the key result makes it clear to everybody on the team what finishing looks like, what success looks mm-hmm. like, what being number one looks like, whether that's quantifiable or qualifiable. But the point is, if you have you know a big goal like get customers, it's very aspirational and it's exciting and it ends in an exclamation point and everybody is ready and, and amped. And then somebody is in the background going, how many customers is enough? You know, and in the spirit of shared understanding, right? Another tenet of agile of teams is making sure that we're all operating from the same understanding Mm -hmm. of what the result is going to be or the desired result. And for a a cadence, so from the roadmap to releases to sprints, are are you finding a a regular cadence in terms of sprints? Like you, you do three, three sprints and that ends up in the release or do you see a lot of variability there? Yeah, I think it it varies. If if what you're describing is, you know, so we're releasing every two weeks, right, at the end of the sprint, but not all releases might be public releases. Sometimes it might just be an internal release for for stakeholder review. I think generally, yeah, you know, two sprints and then a release. But again, it really depends on, on what you're pushing out the door. If it's small, and you can get it done in the two weeks, then, and it and it passes testing, then it's going live. Excellent. Really great experience Th- through the years that you've been there with the Development Factory. Build up really wonderful experiences, and I appreciate you taking time to share some of those with us. Uh, and so many more things we could, t- could talk about. But as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote, <laughs> and always ask for one. And Suzanne, what did you bring us? My quote that I want to share is, you will never be ready if you keep waiting until you are ready. And tell us about this quote and how this came to you. Yeah. Because this is your quote. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, I have a product management podcast. And we didn't talk about that. Maybe we will. But one of the questions I ask my guests a lot is, you know, how did you get into product management? And one of the things that we've learned over and over again is most people don't take a predictable or um, expected path into product management. But I teach. And... 
as I teach more and more students who are, are now seeking a more formal path into product management, you know, we get to the end of our course and then these same questions come up like, what should I go and study next? Should I take a UX course? Should I take data science? Should I do all of these things? And I'm a big proponent of education. I'm a big proponent of, of, you know, constantly learning. And I'm not a big proponent of using education um, in place of fear. So I think it's like, look, there's a lot that we need to learn. There's a lot that I still need to learn. And if I used all the things that I don't know yet or don't know as well as I would like to know as a, a reason to not go out and try them and do them, then I would be always standing on the sidelines. So I think what I want to say to the listeners here is if you want it, go after it, mm -hmm. be as good as you are today, and then keep learning as you're doing it. Iterate on your own self, on your own expertise, and you'll be ready by virtue of doing. I love the quote, and I love your description of it even more. And if we indeed let our desire to become really good at something to prevent us from ever doing anything, none of us would do anything at all, right? We, we would always be waiting until we felt like we were good enough. Absolutely. Just stepping out, that's how we gain experience and we get better. And it also ties back into what we were talking about, the release of some too, and being really specific about what goes into a release and what doesn't. We oftentimes will make the wrong decision, right? We need to get gain experience from our customers and from just having done it and see what works and what doesn't work. And I definitely want to hear about your podcast and for you to tell listeners how they can get in touch with you to find out more about the work with your podcast, product management training you do, and also the development factory. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening in and you like the approach that, that I described about how we operate at the development factory, you should go to the developmentfactory.com and check us out or um, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm just, you know, Suzanne Abate. You can find me. I love to make new connections. The podcast is called 100 Product Managers. It's actually part of a, a bigger initiative I've been working on for a little over a year. We're a fast-growing online community that provides you know, actionable advice for folks in product roles, so certainly product managers, but also PM-adjacent roles such as design and engineering. Uh, every Tuesday, I interview a new product manager and... Um, we're on our way to 100 episodes. We just wrapped up our second season focused on Chicago. So if that sounds interesting, it's 100 p.m. in podcasts or 100productmanagers.com. You should check it out. And I hope everyone does check it out and listen to the podcast. There's a bunch that we've talked about that we certainly agree on. I think one cornerstone here is we love a, a community of product managers yeah. and there's always more to learn and getting together and being able to do that offers great value. And I appreciate the work that you are doing with 100productmanagers.com and bringing voices in product management to us, just as I'm trying to do through this podcast too. And I appreciate you taking time to be part of this podcast and sharing your experience with the everyday innovators. I echo your sentiment 100%, Chad. I love the, the podcast that you have. I love the conversations that you're facilitating. And uh, I look forward to more collaboration and, and helping to uh, bridge these gaps for individuals across the country. Great. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. The summary of the discussion with Suzanne is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 157. Keep innovating. 
Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.